Okay there, saints. Tonight, open your Bibles, please, Exodus chapter 32. We continue in this chapter, this chapter of, of sin. We are in verse 7. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we're so grateful that you, through your grace, you, through your spirit, you're diligent enough, Lord, to tell us these issues that we are going to have with sin in our own lives and how to deal with sin in our own lives, what the repercussions will be of sin in our own lives. And yet at the same time, you're going to teach us how we need to see sin in other people's lives. Sometimes that's truly the test. Both are, we know, but, but sometimes how do we look at these things? And so, Father, we're so grateful for these passages you set before us. And now we're simply asking once again for ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Last week, we dealt with the, the reasons for sin. And um, we looked at those areas of, of um, you know, not wanting to wait on the Lord, lessening his word to say it's more of a, of a um, word equal to mine. It's just one opinion over another that the word of God has no real authority over the way that I do things. The, the leaders themselves wanting to, to please men versus them pleasing God and, and then changing God's image into something that is something I'm more comfortable with, something that it's, becomes a God of my own making. And then, you know, just being able to say, hey, as long as I can do religious works, without having to really have this intimacy with God. And, and I can just simply be on the outside and do stuff versus trying to draw near and understanding what that is. And then we come to this area of the response to sin. Now, when it comes to this area of the response, as we're going to be looking at it, then we'll hit the, the results of the sin in verses 15 through 29 and the reparation, the atonement for sin as we finish this chapter. But what I want to do is this. I want to read through the portion that we're going to study. But what I do, I want to back up. I want to back up to last week's. And so um, although we're only going to study from 7 to 14, I want to actually take the time to read from verses 1 through 14 just so that we have the full picture of what's going on. Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain... The people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the gold earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and he made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and they brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Now verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down. For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. 
They've made themselves a molded calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Verse 10, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. Verse 11, then Moses pleaded with the Lord is God and said, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Verse 13, remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. As we look to this area of the response to sin, some of the things that we're going to look at, and I think it's important to make a note on, is this. One, what is your response to sin? Good question. Now, that really holds into two forms, two sides of the coin. What is your response to sin in you? And what is your response to sin in others? So often when it comes to the response of sin to ourselves, I love that passage that when we're in the, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18, verses 8 and 9, when he talked about if your hand offends you, cut it off, cast it from you. If your foot offends you, cut it off, <coughs> cast it from you. If your eye offends you, pluck it out, cast it from you. If you deal with sin in your own life, you need to deal with it in a radical way. Not to take the time to say, well, it's nothing. But so often when we deal with sin in others, and, and I, I, I'm fascinated by that passage when we were in Matthew chapter 7. And remember what the, the Lord had talked about judging and how we judge other people. But he made this statement in, in Matthew 7, verse 3. He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eyes. So he talks about that area of judging. And how when you see sin in other people, you need to see it as a speck. When you see sin in yourself, you need to see it as a plank. And before you take it upon yourself to deal with the specks in your brother's eye, then deal with the sin, those planks that are in your own. But it's important to note that what here, when God speaks about the response to sin, 
the first thing that we see is there's an urgency. Notice what he says in verse 7. Go get down. You understand? You, you, you can't just sit around. This is what's <laughs> been happening. And so in, in this area, I just find it so fascinating that he says, go get down. Notice what he says in verse 8. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commend them. There's an urgency in dealing with sin. And so within this, I, I find it just one of these things that when he says you have to get down and when he says there's an urgency in dealing with this sin, what that does is it brings a, a, a greater focus to what that sin is. In other words, when it's a sin that doesn't have to be dealt with, you can just kind of put it aside. It's nothing. But when God says, this is a sin you have to look at, this is a sin you have to be aware of, then there's this greater urgency. In other words, it elevates, it should elevate that sin in your mind, it should elevate it in your eyes, it should elevate it in your heart, it should elevate it in, I need to deal with this sin. And so when God puts in this point, he says, go get down for the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupt themselves. Now, it's interesting, we talked about that Back in, in last week, we were looking at verse 1, where they had made that statement, come make us gods that should go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up. We talked about that. It wasn't you know Moses that brought them up. It was God that brought them up. But God does something unique. Now, what we're going to see here is this. The people in the first six verses have been tested and they failed. What's happening now in this next portion is Moses is being tested. Now, keep in mind, it's not God who's being tested. God already knows the end from the beginning. He understands everything that's going on. What's happening now is the people have been tested. Now he's going to test Moses. And so as Moses is recognizing, there's an urgency here, I understand it, but God says, your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. He's connecting Moses to the people. And I think it's important that as he's connecting Moses to the people that he's making a very clear point that one, you have to understand verse eight, he says, they have corrupted themselves at the end of verse 7. They've turned aside quickly in verse 8 out of the way which I command them. They've made themselves a molded calf. They worshiped it. They sacrificed it. They said, this is your God, O Israel, who's brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so as we're seeing this, as, as we, we recognize God is saying, listen, there's an urgency. We, there's sin right now. Sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be judged. But so often when we look to the judgment of sin and we look at what God is saying, we got to deal with sin. And these are your people. You, 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 you brought them out. And then God does something unique here in verse 9 and 10. He said, I have seen this people. I've observed them. I'm aware of them. I am very aware of what's going on. I've seen this people. And indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, God says, let me alone. Now, this should trigger something in your mind. This should trigger something in my mind. 
God doesn't have to go to Moses and say, let me alone. In other words, do I have your permission to do this? He doesn't have to tell Moses anything. He could just simply go and do what he's going to do. But he goes to Moses and he says, let me alone. Just, just, just don't, don't, don't get involved in this. Let me take care of this. And it's almost like those people say, no, no, hold me back. No, don't hold me back. Don't, I told you, hold me back. Don't hold me back because you want to do something. It's God's way of telling Moses, listen, pay attention to this. He says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And then I'm going to make of you a great nation. So understand that there's three things that we understand that this is a test in. One, basically he says, you brought him out, which he hasn't. God goes on to say, let me alone because I want to consume them. Okay, that's a possibility in this. But when he says, let me alone, he's almost in a sense asking Moses for permission to be God. And of course, God doesn't have to ask permission to be God. And the last thing that he does in this test, he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. There's a couple of things we're going to learn through this test. This is one of the things that should stand out. And I want to show you a little bit of what the character and the nature of the Father is. Because we understand God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That one we understand. There's a passage where Jesus gives a beautiful parable. And within this parable, sometimes in your Bible, it's called the lost son. It should truly be called the lost sons, plural. Now, you know about the prodigal son. And it begins in Luke chapter um, 15, in verse 11, he says, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Give me the portion of my goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and wasted his possessions on prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And then he went, and he joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. So you have a Jewish man feeding swine, that which is unclean. And we recognize, verse 16, how desperate he is. He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he comes to a right mind. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to, to spare? And I perish with hunger. So now he's thinking back home and he's thinking, even my father's servants, they're fed. I'm not being fed. And so he says in verse 18, I will arise. I will go to my father. I will say to him, father... I have sinned against heaven and before you. So now we're going to see here, this parable introduces the father and his children. Now, as we're looking there, Moses is now talking to the father. He's talking to God. And where he's, God says, these are yours. And God says, no, Moses, no, God, they're your children, not mine. So we're looking at the understanding of the heart of a father towards his children. Well, the one, when he comes to himself, is going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your higher servants. 
because of my sin, I shouldn't be a son, but make me a servant. Make you know, just 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 demote me, cancel me as a son, but make me a servant. Because I'll have a better life as your servant. I've already blown the fact that I was your son. That I don't deserve. And so in verse 20, he arose and he came to his father, exactly what he says. I need to go up, I need to go, I need to go to my father. So he does exactly what he says. He arose, he came to his father. But it says this as far as the nature and the character of his father in verse 20. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. The question is, begs to be asked, well, how did the father see him when he was a great way off? Answer, he was looking for him. And so as, as he's there a great way, great way off, his father sees him. And then it says this in verse 20, and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. He embraces him. He holds him. He protects him. He goes to his son and, and rather than, you know, just going there and shaking his finger and scolding and rather than disciplining, say, what are you doing here? You're not worthy to be called my son. You took everything and you ran away. He doesn't do that. He has compassion. He embraces him. He restores him. So much so in verse 21, the son said to the father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hands, sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this my son. Remember, he said, I'm not worthy to be called your son. You're my son. And so not only does he protect him, but he restores him in his compassion and then he celebrates the return. So understand that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is his heart. But understand that the, the mode of that young man is the mourning, the grieving, the weeping, the, the I am not worthy to be called your son. But he does say in verse 24, this is my son who was dead, is now alive, and he was lost and now found, and they begin to be married. Now we look at the other prodigal, the older son was in the field. And he came and drew near the house and he heard music and dance. He called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And he said to them, your brother has come because he has received him safe and sound. Your father's killed a fatted calf. Now, now understand that he doesn't go and ask what the father's will is. It's already there. Your father has received him. Your father has celebrated him. And, and now notice he doesn't seek to be like the father. He has resentment. He has bitterness. Verse 28 says what he has. He was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. Now understand, the father is pleading, come on in, come on in, come on in. I want you to come in. The, the, the father comes after both sons. Note that he comes after the one that was a prodigal first. He comes after the one that doesn't want to come in and celebrate, the one to come in to restore. He comes after both the sons. He wants them both to come in and to be a part of his joy. And in verse 29, so he, this younger son, answers and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I've never transgressed 
your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Now, it's absolutely amazing that his father comes out, pleads with him to come in, and yet he can say, I've never transgressed one of your commandments. Apparently, this one doesn't count. So we're looking at this, and he, he says, and I love the heart of it. And, and so where, where Philippians 2, 3, 3 says, let each esteem others better than himself. That should be the heart of it. But here in verse 30, he says, but as soon as this your son came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said, son, you're always with me. All that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. It's important to understand here that that passage is revealing many things. It reveals the heart of the first prodigal son. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm not going to take that position under your authority I just want to go and I want to make better choices on my own and realize how bad choices they make. He comes back and expects to be have a, you know, a demotion. The father restores him, blesses him, celebrates him. The older son comes in and doesn't want to act in this point of celebration, but wants to still be angry and have this place of resentment. And what he's really wanting is this. I want them punished. In, in, in a sense, you, 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 could, you could almost say this, verse 10 could have been his mind thought, could have been a little bit of his heart. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against him. <laughs> that sounds like the older son. Just, just deal with him. He needs to be punished. So understand that as the people have failed their test, now Moses comes and he's tested. God says, let, let me alone. I want you to understand that what God is about to do is he's going to show Moses that there's a distinction on how you become aware of sin. In verse 9, God makes a statement and he says this, I have seen this people. I'm aware of it. I'm a witness to it. He doesn't just hear about it. He sees it. Now Moses at this point only hears. He only hears about it. And as he hears about the sin, and we're going to be looking in just a little bit the distinction between the hearing and the seeing. Because when you hear about sin, there's a, a sometimes there's a disconnect versus seeing it. Let me kind of give you an, an example Turn to Exodus chapter 32, verse 19. Scroll down to verse 19. And, and I want you to see what happens here. We'll look more into it next week. But I want you to be aware of it here. In verse 19 of Exodus 32. So it was as soon as he came near the camp. This is as soon as Moses comes near the camp. that he saw the calf. Now he sees it. He's aware of it. He's observed this. He saw the calf and the dancing. 
So, what's Moses' reaction to seeing versus hearing? Moses' anger became hot. He cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He then takes the cap which they had made, burned it in the fire, ground it in powder, scattered it on the water, and made the children of Israel drink it. It's going to sound a little bit different than what he says in these preceding verses that we're going to look at. So I want you to understand that, that when you can talk about something versus seeing something, there's an awareness level of sin. And so often what we have a tendency of doing is we become less aware of the sin in our lives because we don't see it. We're aware of it, we're, we're there, but we're not looking at mirrors, we're not looking at a video of us doing these things. We're, we're involved in it, but we don't see it from the outside in. But we see what? We see other people sin from the outside. It's amazing how we judge what we see versus what we should perceive. And, and, and I, I find this interesting because when, when Moses only hears, his response is, Oh, Lord, you know, be, be patient with them. <laughs> just, just grace, compassion, those things that, that is your nature. But when he sees it himself, then his anger becomes hot. Have you ever seen that when our culture talks about abortion? And I don't want to get overly you know, political, but they talk about abortion. And, and what they, they, they do is this, they, they simply don't recognize what's going on. Now, people are greatly, greatly offended when they actually see videos of these murdered children that are cut to pieces. They become very offended at that. And, and the goal that those that understand about this life, their goal is to this, to try to get people to see a sonogram of a 3D image of your living baby inside your womb. If they could do that, if they could see that, to recognize here your child is moving, here your child has the fingers and the toes and, and is sucking his thumb, he's doing all these things, you become aware of that, and then what? Now I realize what sin it is, but if you can say, oh, no, 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 it's, it's not a living being, it's not. If I don't have to see it, I can just simply just perceive what I want it to be, and it means that I can make it less. It's one of those things that in our, in our culture, maybe you've heard about hungry children in the other parts of, of the world, and then you've seen a UNICEF commercial. Now the UNICEF commercials, and I don't know if they still a UNICEF, but it was back when I was younger, but they would show these little kids sitting on top of a garbage dump and kind of picking through and, and people's hearts when they see that would be moved to say, I want to give. And, and UNICEF really just pegged in on it versus hearing it, giving a commercial, hey, there, there's needy children, help out versus you need to see this. And when people saw that, their hearts were moved. And so I, I think it's one of those things that Moses is going to get a test here. Moses is going to get a test because eventually 
when he hears of sin and when he sees sin, what's going to be his reaction? And how is he going to look to this? That's one of the things that we're going to see with, with, with the test. So the, the, the first thing is this. Within the test, God makes gives Moses a couple of choices. He says, you got to go down there. You've got to see this. I've seen the people. They're a stiff-necked people. Now, what God does to Moses in verse 10 is this. He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'll completely consume every man, woman, and children. They're all gone. And you, Moses, can be the new Abraham. You could be the father of all nations. You could be this. It doesn't have to be Abraham. Abraham, he'll be like, oh yeah, all of his descendants, boy, they were just horrible, except for Moses. But through Moses, then I'm going to do through you. And so amazingly, one of the choices that Moses gets to have is, am I going to serve these people and, and, and seek to bring about God's will and God's purposes and God's glory? Is that going to be what I want? Or am I going to do where I'm going to say, God, yes, let it be all about me. Not about you. Let it be about me. I'll be the name. I'll be this person. And, and through that, you can feel your desires through me. Now, I want you to understand that as we go through these next couple of verses, I want you to understand that how Moses has this heart for the people. Keep in mind that Moses has been in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights. And yet he walks down and he sees the people in verse 19 and instantly his wrath is hot. Instantly he just wants to see them, you know, pay a price. But when Moses comes now, you have to understand that Moses has been hanging out with God. And Moses is going to remind God of this person that he's been around with. And it's a beautiful thing to watch and see what's happening. Now... When God goes to Moses and he says, okay, listen, sin has to be judged. And we understand that's true. Sin, sin does have to be judged. But the, the question is, is this, how does a spiritual person judge sin? First and foremost, we deal with the planks in our own eyes. Then we can deal with the specks that are in our brother's eyes. Those things we understand. There's a passage in Galatians chapter 6, verse um, 1. And I want to read it to you because he says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, man is there in sin. You who are spiritual, and, and I, I love the heart of this, he doesn't say condemn that man, point out the sin to that man. He doesn't do that. He says, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. It's one of those things like the, the religious leaders, the, they would bring that woman caught in the very act of adultery there before the Lord and says, the law says she should be stoned. She should be killed. What do you say? Well, 
You who are without sin, throw it first. Then he goes back to writing in the dirt. And it's amazing to see here that this heart of God, because the, the spiritual man, you who are spiritual, restore in a spirit of gentleness. Boy, I tell you what, I, I love that spiritual restoration. How do you restore as a servant? Um, we're aware of that passage in the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 14, verse 4, um, it's, it's unique as God goes in and, and puts this truth out. But he makes a statement as far as one servant and another servant. In Romans chapter 14, verse 4, he makes this declaration. He says, who are you to judge another's servant? Now, this is one thing. If we're the boss, we can judge, but we're equals. And as Moses has received grace for his sin, so will the children receive grace for their sins. And, and Moses is going to remind God about that grace. But who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands and falls. And indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. This is the heart. When it comes to sin, when it comes to the restoration of sin, when we were in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and we're going through those areas called the Beatitudes, and we understand that we had to, you know, first and foremost, there were steps to go through and understanding where we are with God. And the first one was to be, you know, poor in spirit, realize that I'm bankrupt. But then the very next one there in verse 4 was, blessed are they who mourn the grieving of the sin, the acknowledging of the sin, the awareness of the sin, to be able to make someone aware of that sin. And when they've been made aware of that sin, like the prodigal son who said, I'm aware of what I've done. I sinned against heaven. I sinned against you. In that awareness of the sin, he didn't come back and say, hey, where's my new robe? Where's my new ring? Where's my new... Kill me a calf, Pops. He did not do that. That wasn't his heart. His heart was one of brokenness, one of mourning. And when you have someone that's overtaken, it's important to, one, get them to the point where they come to that place of, of repentance, of mourning, of understanding their sin. But we do realize that sin in and of itself has to be judged. But when you come to this judgment of sin, the beautiful thing is, is that so often we as people, we want to see the fullest extent of the law go to thee. But I want grace to come to me. So when I see sin in someone else, I want them to have that punishment. I want them. But yet the reality is what? It's important to say, give me over to God. Give me to God. And, and, and what is God's heart towards my response when I become aware of my sin? There's a beautiful passage, and we've covered it before, but I want to cover it again just this evening so that we can become aware of the sin and how it's dealt with. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, you're aware of this. This is where David is, is moved by Satan to go and number Israel. Well, eventually, David tells Joab, I want you to number the people. Joab says, listen, it's not a good idea. You shouldn't be doing this. Um, there, you know, why would you want to be the cause of this guilt in Israel? And yet, nevertheless, the king's word would prevail and Joab would go and number the people. 
And so he would number them. He wouldn't quite number all of them. And so he didn't quite count Benjamin. He didn't quite count Levi because he wanted a little bit of, ah, maybe if, if, if you don't have the right number, maybe God's going to not judge you as deeply. But verse 7 of 1 Chronicles 21 says God was displeased with this thing. David, your, your heart is, is not right. So David said to God, I sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done foolishly. Understand, sin does have to be judged. And David simply says, take away the iniquity. God's going to say, I'll, I'll take away the iniquity, but you're not going to like how I have to do this. David is at that point where he's, aware of it he's going to come to the point where in verse 17 he's going to really come to a place of mourning over it and realizing the repercussions of the sin but we do say in verse 8 david said i've sinned greatly because i've done this thing but now i pray take away the iniquity well verse 9 the lord spoke to gad to david's seer saying go tell david saying, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said, choose. Thus says the Lord, choose for yourself either three years of famine, three months to be defeated by your foes and the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else for three days the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel, now consider what I will, what answer I will take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. And then he says this so brilliantly, so wisely, please let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are very great. <laughs> That's amazing to see. He says, but do not let me fall in the hand of man. So the Lord said to plague, verse 14, 70,000 men of Israel fell. God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented from the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying it, it's enough. He wanted to see what God does. He looks at and to say, can I do the least amount to get my point across? This is what God desires to do. And you, he desires to do with me. The problem is, is when our heart gets hardened, See, what God wanted to do to Egypt was say, let my people go, so they would let God's people go. They wouldn't do it. So, all right, now we're going to turn water into blood. Now, is that enough? No, that's not enough. Until all the firstborn died, then get out, go, we're kicking you out of Egypt. Do you understand? God, God tries to tamper everything, doing the least amount that he can but he does have to get his point across. It depends on how open we are to hearing the word of God, how open we are to repenting, how open we are to turning. Once the 70,000 people came, we see here in verse 19, David lifted his eyes, saw the angel Lord standing between earth and heaven, having his hand drawn, the sword stretched over Jerusalem. So David and the elders clothed in sackcloth mourning fell on their faces and David said to God, was it not I who committed, who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord, be against me in my father's house, but not against your people that they should be plagued. 
amazing to see David in his heart. Do you understand? He's recognizing, wow, consequences for sin. And because of these, these consequences, we realize when he says sin is being judged, there's a mourning over that. And he says, let it be upon me. Now, as we recognize, as Moses is hearing, as God is declaring that, that sin has to be judged, sin has to be judged, sin has to be judged, let me just simply consume these people. As New Testament believers, we have a truth that we stand on. Sin has been judged. See, our sin has been judged on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so because it's been judged so often, we don't have the consequences happening to us. We don't have the consequences happening to the church. And what happens is we fail to see sin as it is. I love what James does when, when James writes his epistle. And in James chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, he makes this statement. He says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And then he says this, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. Become aware. Look at the sin on your hand. Be aware of that sin in your heart. And then he says this in verse 9. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And then he says this in verse 11 and 12. He says, do not speak evil of one another. Don't badmouth the other person. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, are you not a doer of the law, but a judge? You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy who are you to judge one another. So you understand when he's talking about lamenting and mourning and weeping, your sin, not your neighbor's. It's looking at the planks in your eyes and lamenting and mourning and weeping over that. And so as here, Moses is going to come to this understanding where he's going to come, he's going to recognize three things about God's people. Not about himself, but about God's people. And this is something to help us as we look to judge sin. How about we look to these things? And we can see when God relents from the vehement wrath, if we look to these same truths too, then what should happen? We should be like God. We should relent from the vehement wrath as we see other people's sins. So what does Moses do? The first thing he does is he talks about God's grace. He talks about basically here, he says, these are the children of God. They're, they're, they're not mine. They're, 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 they're God's. It's just not my duty to see them punished. It's God's. To their own master, they will stand or fall. He is able to make them stand. These are the truths. So what does Moses do? Well, in verse 11, it says Moses pleaded with the Lord. You can call it a prayer. You can call it a supplication. You can call it an intercession. And what, what Moses does is this. Moses shows himself 
to be the prophet that he said, in time, God is going to send a prophet like me. There's going to be another prophet like me. That prophet is going to be who? Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of that. Moses himself, as he's hanging with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights, has this incredible heart for God's children. And he has a heart for others. Now, he could simply say, yeah, you know what? I want to be the new Abraham. Make me the father of the new nations. I'm tired of these whiners. They've been whining about water, whining about this, and all these things. Just, yeah, wipe them out. He doesn't do that. And he sees his, because when God says, hey, you know what? The people whom you brought out, he goes, oh, Lord. The first thing we understand is they're, they're, they're not ours. We're fellow servants. They're God's children. And, and, and I think it's so important that when Moses pleads to the Lord as God, he says, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Understand that he brings God back to the first. Now, Basically, God has already said, and it's so powerful, he said, I've seen this people, and indeed is it a stiff-necked people. But remember earlier on in the book of Exodus in chapter 3, verse 7? I love what God does. He said this, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people. You understand that he sees them in the need. He sees them where... Yeah, these people, I understand what they're doing, but I do understand that they are weak. God sees our frame and we are but dust. And God looks upon us and he looks upon our sin. He says sin has to be judged, but God in his grace, God in his, his, his compassion, he, he simply wants to do that. And so it's important to, to recognize that, that he says, listen, you know, God, look at the people that you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Understand, Moses in a sense saying, God, these people with me didn't deserve, we didn't deserve to be free from Egypt. It should be our lot. We are sinners. We should be punished. What a great way to punish us. Just, just make us servants. Remember what the first prodigal said. Don't make me a son. I sin. Make me a servant. Now, what is Moses saying? To Listen. Yeah, they should be servants. But God, they're sons. They're daughters. And I think it's so interesting that, that when we come that, we want to see the repercussions. We want to see them demoted to be a servant. And God says, I want to bring them in as a son and daughter. And what Moses does is, remember these people? They were servants. They deserved to be servants. They deserved to be slaves. That's what, but you looked at them. You had compassion on them. You gave grace to them when grace wasn't deserved, and you brought them out. And amazingly, as he's doing this, he's showing them, you're doing this by grace, God. You brought them out by grace. Is your grace now going to end? Is your grace done with? 
I, I love what Moses does as, as he, he's, he's talking to the Lord in Exodus 33. And he's speaking over and over and over. I want to, I want to start sharing just a portion of it. I want to start in, in Exodus 33 and start reading in verse 12. Because this is what happens. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people. But you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You, you, you said, I, I know you by name, and yet you've also found grace in my sight. He says, God, I've experienced your grace. These people have experienced your grace. Now, therefore, I pray if I found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you, that I may find grace in your sight. You understand grace, 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 grace. He's talking about this. And consider that this nation is your people. The grace upon me needs to flow into them. The grace that you have in taking us out of being servants into being your children. And, and he said, this is your people. And he says in verse 14, he says, my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. And he, Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up. If we're not involved in your grace if we're not here then then and if you're not with us we don't even want to be here joshua does something amazing you guys know that passage in joshua 24 15 where it says that's for me my house will serve the lord maybe you you have a plaque in your house maybe you you know you 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 have that down somewhere and but in joshua 24 15 what i want to do is this i want to read the rest of it so that you can understand what is God saying? What does Joshua mean when he begins to make this statement that we will serve the Lord? Well, in Joshua 24, 15, and if it seems evil for you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So what are you going to do? You're going to choose the God of your own making. You're going to choose a false God. Who are you going to obey? You or God? He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. We wouldn't do that. That's not who we are. It's a great line. And then in verse 17, they said, For the Lord our God is he who brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwell in the land, we also will serve the Lord, for he's our God. Now, I want to be honest with you. Sounds good. Sounds right. But notice what Joshua does when they said, we will serve the Lord, for he's our God. Joshua in verse 19 said, you cannot serve the Lord. Now, they said, we will. He said, you can't. Why is he doing that? Well, when he said, you cannot serve the Lord, he's a holy God. He's a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. 
Now, isn't this what Moses is asking God to do? Now, they transgressed having an idol, right? And Joshua is saying, God's not going to forgive you. He's, he's, you're, you're, you. You have to have the punishment of what you're going to do. He will not forgive your transgression nor your sin. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. He's basically doing what? He's reiterating exactly what Moses is going through. You're sinning against a, a foreign god. You're making another god. And, and so he says, you can't serve God when you're serving this other thing. And verse 21, the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. They're saying, it, it, <laughs> that's not who we are. We're going to serve God. So Joshua said to the people, you're a witness against yourselves. Not just a witness, you're a witness against yourself. You yourself put this in to say you're going to have this punishment come upon you, that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now notice what he says. Now we all want to quote Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house will serve the Lord. I would love to see this plaque in everybody's house, Joshua 24, 23, where Joshua says, now therefore he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. Do you realize that they're still, even after they get into the promised land, even after God has given them the territory, they still have foreign gods. Mm -hmm. And he said, you still have to get rid of them. Because if you hold on to those, you can't serve the Lord. It's one of those things where here the, the Lord is trying to really open up and, and say, okay, Moses, you have to understand this is my heart. Go to this point. Now, I want to share with you an extended version of what this passage is that we're looking at. If you're familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 9, there's greater detail in what's going on here than just in our passage. And that's what I love about Deuteronomy. It expands it out. It's called the second law. But it begins this. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, beginning in verse 3, Moses begins to talk to the children of Israel, and he says, God is going to bring you into this land. He's going to bless you. But when you receive a blessing from God, don't pat yourself on the back saying, Oh my goodness, boy do I deserve that. And what happens is this, when we experience the grace of God, rather than, than looking at our sin like James tells us to look at sin, when we experience God's goodness that leads men to repentance, we're thinking, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe in the long-suffering of God, because he's not judging me instantly. Now, keep in mind, God says sin has to be judged urgently. But if God's not the one who says, if I'm going to be long-suffering, still, sin still needs to be judged urgently, we need to be urgent in dealing with the sin in our lives. Not so urgent in dealing with the sin in other people's lives. And so here... Moses speaking to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 9, verse 3, Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them 
and bring them down before you, so you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. Do not think, verse 4, in your heart, after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it's because of the wickedness of this nation, the Lord is driving them out. It's not because of your goodness, it's because they're actually worse than you. <laughs> but you're his children, you shouldn't be that. You understand, you can expect certain behaviors from your neighbor's kids. You don't expect it from your own. Well, at this point in verse 5, he says, Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God drives them out before you, that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand, the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. It's amazing that here Moses recognized this people is a stiff-necked people. Now God himself would say back in our text, Exodus 32 verse 9, I've seen this people and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now Moses just reiterates that. He says, you guys are stiff-necked. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord and also in Horeb. This is our text now. You provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry. Even with you, enough with you to have destroyed you. God is saying that the penalty of sin the wages of sin is death. And he was going to show you the truth to that statement. He said, the Lord was angry enough with you to have destroyed you. When I went up into the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, which the Lord made with you, and I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord delivered to me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words the Lord has spoken to you on the mountain. From the midst of the fire and the day of the assembly. And it came to pass at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord gave me two tablets of stone. The tablets of the covenant. The Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here. For your people whom you brought out of, this, out of Egypt have acted corruptly. And they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them and have made themselves a molded image. Furthermore, the Lord spoke to me saying, I've seen this people, indeed it is, they are a stiff-necked people, and let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire. The two tablets of the covenant were in my hands, and I looked and behold, you had sinned against the Lord. So he sees this now. You had sinned against the Lord your God and had made for yourselves a molded calf. And you turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord commanded you. And I took the two tablets and I threw them out of my hands and I broke them before your eyes. And I fell down before the Lord as at the first 40 days and 40 nights. 
I neither ate bread nor drank water because of your sin, which you committed in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and the hot displeasure which the Lord was angry with you to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me at that time also, and the Lord was very angry with Aaron and would have destroyed him. So I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took your sin. Now notice what he does. I'm going to deal with the sin. I took your sin, the calf which you had made. I burned it with fire. I crushed it. I ground it very small until it was fine as dust, and I threw the dust into the brook as it descended from the mountain. I put your sin in the water and allowed it to flow. I took the sin away. It was washed. That's so amazing, this thing that Moses is doing. And, and so when, when you're seeing the, 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 the children of God, they're just the children of God. A couple of verses I want you to be aware of. Aware of. The first is found in Galatians chapter um, 3, verse 26. It, it, Paul makes this statement. It's, it's a powerful statement. He says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Beautiful. It's one of those things where we recognize, yes, God, that is who we are. That is how you are. This is your promise that we are all sons of God. Jesus does something unique in the Gospel of John. I don't know if you're aware of this passage, and, and you may have read it. We're going to go deeper into when we get to this portion of the Gospel of John. But in John chapter 16... Three verses to be aware of, verses 25 through 27. John 16, beginning of verse 25, says this. These things I have spoken to you in a figurative language. Jesus is speaking to them. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in a figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. He says, okay, now I've given you parables of the, the prodigal son, the father. I've spoken those things. You, now I'm going to tell you plainly. In that day, verse 26, you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I shall pray the father for you. You're going to ask me to intercede. And I don't have to intercede. Why? He says this. For the Father, verse 27, himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I think it's so important that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Father loves you. God demonstrated, and this is so important, his own love towards us that while we were yet sinner, sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5 eight. It's so important to recognize that. So after he says, God, it's your grace is bestowed. Your grace is bestowed. Do this. And then in verse 12, he says this. And I want you to have glory. I want people not only to know that they are your children, but I want people to know your character. He says this in verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out to do them harm? to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth, from where your fierce wrath Turn from your fierce wrath. Relent from this harm to your people. Moses goes to the very character of God. He goes, he says, I, I dealt with your grace. And, and I want you to know these are your children that you don't want to have to punish. You want them to come to repentance. Yes, you want them to be aware of their sin and its consequences. Yes, 
but you are long-suffering towards them. And I want people to recognize your character. Don't have to say, wow, he just, someone sins and boom, there's God. Now, how many Christians do you know that literally are like that? They go to witness someone and all you hear is the wrath of God and the Sodom and Gomorrah coming down upon you. And, and so often that becomes where the, the mindset of the people are. There's a passage in the Gospel of Luke that helps us understand that. I want to take you to a passage in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. And I only want to read a couple of verses, verses 51 through 56. You'll know it when I start reading it. But it begins this. Now it came to pass, Luke 9, 51. When the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadily set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of Samaritan to prepare for him. The Lord's on his way to Jerusalem. Can he stay here for the night? But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Verse 54, And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Amazing Sort of like God says, let me alone that I may consume them. They say, Lord, shall we help you consume them? And Jesus' response in verse 55, he turned and rebuked him. He says, you don't know what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Jesus only does the will of the Father. And I think it's so important to recognize here the very character of God. And then after that, he says this. After he says, I want them to understand your character. And then he says this, God, your promises. Remember your promises? Look at verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all the land that I have spoken, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Now understand, God could have wiped everybody out except Moses, and the promise would have still been true. He says, but, but understand, he said, I want them to experience the promise you gave to them. I want them to experience your promises. So the Lord relented from the harm, which he said he would do. There's something about the beautiful area of the promises of God. There's a passage, just jot it down and be aware of it, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Paul, when he wrote his second epistle, made this statement. He said, for all the promises of God in him, which is in Jesus Christ, are yes and amen to the glory of God through us. When we recognize the promises of God and we say, well, you know, should we have the wrath of God? He says, you know what? How about a blessing instead? And truly, it's God's goodness that leads men to repentance. And so when we come to this, God is declaring, and you have to understand, he is declaring, in, in all honesty, this is my response to sin. Sin needs to be punished. The wages of sin is death. It's true. But yet, the grace of God. There's something that's greater than sin, and that's the love of God. There's something that's greater than sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And so we take a look to this, and, and what Moses does is this. He passes the test. The question is, is that are we going to pass the test? 
when we look at other people's sins? Are we going to be those who say, God, they're your children? Are we going to be those who say, you know what, God, um, your character towards me was grace. Why do I want your character to be different towards them? Why do I need them to be judged when I ask grace, grace for me, grace, grace for thee as well? And then to realize that the promises that we have, it's in Christ Jesus. When we say you have to deal with the sin, you have to deal with the sin, we can tell them your sin has been dealt with through the person of Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean that he's not going to sanctify you, but it has been dealt with. And, and it was an urgent thing. And God said, it's done. It's finished. Urgency is paid. And so as we look to this, I think it's just a great response for us to say, okay, what is our response towards sin? We know the reality of it. Wages in his death. What's our response? Are we going to be those who are spiritual and seek to restore? Are we going to be those equal servants who say, you know what? I'm, I'm the same as you. I sinned like you sinned. Maybe a different sin, but every sin. You fail at one point, you fell in the whole law. And, and my heart is to see that you experience the grace of God like I did, but at the same time that you, there's a mourning for that sin. There's response in their lives for that sin. Let them be aware of the wages of the sin and what it is. And then if they do have that mourning, praise God, because that's all he wants. He wants the heart to turn. May that be us as well. Amen. Amen. Well, Father, we are so grateful for this word that you've given to us. And Lord, just how faithful you are. Lord, we are asking that you would continue to um, show us in these passages, these areas of sin. How it is our nature. We are all going to sin, but yet, how do we respond to it, Lord? And, and as, as we do, Lord, we recognize that, that you are so good. That the response to sin that you had is a true response. It has to be dealt with. It has to be punished. Death needs to come. But yet, you tested Moses. And he revealed your heart. The heart that he'd been witnessing for 40 days and 40 nights. And he passed. Well, he came and he saw it. <laughs> it changed again. But help us be those who see the sin in our own lives, who become very aware of the sin in our lives, that we can repent and mourn and weep over those things and, and seek to walk in your grace, in your goodness, not because we've earned it, but because you're full of grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.